0: All right, well, in our time together this morning, we are going to pick up where we left off when we were together last week on this topic of fundamentals of business for a computing professional. I hope that uh, you have uh, been enjoying our lab times together on Tuesday. We really seem to have a lot of. Uh, very competitive teams this semester. Uh, A lot of semesters what happens is there are uh, two or three teams that jump out to a uh, good lead based on some uh, good decision-making and then uh, sometimes we have two or three teams that are just really doing very, very badly. And uh, at least at this point this semester, we don't have any teams that are doing badly at all or really even close to badly. We, We do have, you know, obviously differences in performance, but from top to bottom, it's not a radical difference. Uh, it's kind of interesting to observe the different strategies that the teams are, are employing. And uh, my hope is that as you do your ERP SIM report this week, you'll learn some things about market preferences and such that, that will uh, serve your team well going into our competition that's next Tuesday. And uh, really, uh, we're now at the point, and especially next Tuesday, where uh, you'll get much more uh, liberty as to what it is that your team produces and products that you bring to market and all. So every week it gets a little bit more competitively challenging. So it will be interesting to see if all of the teams can continue their good performance and uh, see if anyone can overtake the, the leading teams and so on. So uh, a few people have already turned in their ERP SIM reports and seem to be having good success with it. So. Uh, don't forget about that opportunity and my encouragement always is to start on it before the last minute that way if you have any questions you can get in touch with me and I can provide assistance so before we jump into our discussion for today any uh, questions or things that would be useful for us to to talk about here at the outset as we get going? All right. well the big reason why this is one of the major Uh, topics in our discussion this semester harkens back to something that we talked about the very first time we were together which is the comment from our advisory board that uh, our computing graduates at least historically before we made some program changes uh, knew a lot about computing but not much about business in the context of computing. And so I think our discussion today should hopefully contribute to uh, alleviating that particular concern and certainly uh, dovetailed with the experience that you are gaining with ERP-SIM. I think it's something that should serve you very well in, in the future. You'll recall, I, I trust, that last time we were together we explored this topic of what is a business. It's focused on exchange it's about producing and or selling products the big idea there is finding out what customers need and filling it with our products but the challenge there is customers are always changing and in a lot of cases customers don't really know what they need until they see something and then all of a sudden they decide that that is in fact something that that they need and so businesses about this idea of building a mutually beneficial relationship and I use the example of Apple with their iPhone and if they set the price too low consumers might like that but that might cause the company to run themselves out of business. On the other hand if they set their prices too high that might be good for the company but not good for a majority of customers. So the key here is always trying to find that balance and create that mutual mutually beneficial relationship we talked about the fact that a lot of businesses uh, do have a profit focus but also observe that there are many businesses that that's not the dominant thing of concern to them and we talked about the highly competitive environment and and the risk that exists from things that a company might do or things that a company might not do and basically a company can never just say okay things are going along good let's keep doing what we're doing and I would suggest to you that you may see, I hope not, or other teams in the context of ERP-SIM might see that play out. You know, if your company is humming along and doing pretty well and you're in, let's just say, first or second place right now, and you say, hey, we're doing good, let's just keep on doing what we're doing and not worry about anything else, well, you run the risk of a competitor coming up with a strategy that the market likes a little bit better than what you're doing or coming up with a mix of products that's a little bit better than yours and knocking you off that position. So even though you might be doing well, you continually have to ask yourself, okay, how can we do better? How can we improve? How can we better meet the needs of our customers? And those kinds of things are what makes business kind of a challenging environment and also kind of an interesting environment as we think about it from a strategic point of view. Well to kind of continue that discussion today I wanted to share with you some information that comes primarily from a study that IBM did a number of years ago where they went out and they surveyed um, two different classes of business leaders. They surveyed uh, CEOs, chief executive officers of companies which they are the, the top leader. They are the ones that run the organization and, and are the, the primary executive in the organization. And they ask them what are the big things that concerns you? And then they also put that same question to CIOs chief information officers and it was very very interesting to see the different things that were listed as concerns by these different groups and so I thought that gives us a nice transition between what we talked about last time and some of the things that we will continue to to look at in our discussion. Well, the chief executive officer, the the top person in the company, has a set of concerns that all of you can relate to through your ERP uh, experience, ERP sim experience, and that is number one is uh, revenue growth. We want to try and grow the company, which means that we wanna look for ways to bring in more and more revenue and embedded in that is the idea of coming up with new products, figuring out uh, better ways to sell our products, basically looking for ways to grow revenue. But then paired with that, if you think about what we know about an income statement, there are two ways to get a bigger number on the bottom line. One way is to make revenue go up, and so that's revenue growth. The other way is through cost containment or cost reduction. You know, if we can, for example, negotiate a better lease and chop $1,000 every month off of our lease payments, well, that's going to go directly to the bottom line because that's going to reduce our overhead and increase our net profit. So, CEOs, one of the big things that they focus on is trying to grow our revenue and trying to contain our cost, and cost containment is something that we hear a lot of in the news these days. It causes companies to make interesting decisions, which may not always be good things for them to do, but they do it with at least the mindset of trying to cut costs to try and become more profitable. So that was number one on the CEOs. List of concerns that that they face. The other thing really should not be a surprise to us at all is responsiveness to business conditions. And this goes back to what we talked about last time about this issue of risk and the issue of the fact that things are dynamically changing all the time. And so we have to realize that as an organization, as conditions change, as new opportunities emerge, we want to be able to capitalize on that. If, for example, in the context of ERP-SIM, all of a sudden we see demand for a certain product increasing in the marketplace, we want to be positioned to be able to take advantage of that. If we have already made decisions and locked in our product mix for a period of time and and we find ourselves not having the ability to do anything to take advantage of that opportunity, We've lost out and one of our competitors most surely will capitalize on that. So one of the things that CEOs are focused on is this idea of being responsive to business conditions. And and then the last thing that that kind of rounded out their, their top three list here was improving company internal skills capabilities and leadership. So the idea here that the chief executive officer as the chief executive wants to try and improve the abilities of all the people throughout the organization. Basically the idea of if we can empower our employees and lead them to be better at their job then that's going to pay off for all of us. So looking for ways to improve internal skills, looking for ways to increase our capabilities, looking for ways to improve leadership. Going back to ERP-SIM for a moment, I, I hope Uh, that as weeks go by and you are working with your teammates and running your virtual organization hopefully things will get smoother for you a a lot of you in your first ERP sim report commented on the fact that things seemed to go pretty well and you thought that you had an effective pattern of communication in your team other people said we're still working on that we still have to figure out how it makes sense to break up the work we have to figure out how to effectively communicate with one another that same scenario plays out in business and so as a leader of an organization you want to try and come up with programs and plans and methods to try and help the company improve in its skills capabilities and leadership so those are the top concerns of the chief executive officer perhaps more relevant to uh, most of us though is to look at the list From the perspective of the chief information officer in other words the technology leader of the company Um, what are the things that that they indicated concerned them and and the top thing on their list I think is really a, a good thing to be there and that is aligning IT and business goals IT exists in an organization to be of service to all the other parts of the organizations. And in contemporary organizations, we are very rapidly reaching a situation where everyone's job, is influenced by information technology. Some people sit in front of a computer all day and so obviously their job is influenced by IT. But salespeople who go out in the field and make sales and then enter those sales into a laptop or iPad or similar technology. Someone working in a plant, who uses the computer system available to him or her to know what it is that they're doing that day, know it is know what it is that they're supposed to make. Even routine things like maintenance workers who have a computer system that tells them, okay, these are the things that need to be fixed and this is the preventative maintenance to be done. We are in a world now where, where just about everything that gets done touches IT in some way so our responsibility as as IT leaders or potential IT leaders in the future is to make sure that what we are doing in information technology aligns with the goals of the business now what's important about this is is IT does not set those goals hopefully IT has a voice in the establishment of those goals but the actual goals of the business are set by the CEO and the executive leadership team and so what we have to do is we have to look at those goals and figure out what that means for us in information technology for example a business might set a goal of um, growing sales revenue by 10% in the next two years, okay? So growing 10%, I guess I'm writing this out of order, growing 10% revenue uh, two years. Well, what does that mean for us in IT? That might mean, for example, that if we can help our organization roll out a mobile app that customers can use to place orders, that might be a way of increasing our sales because we're giving customers uh, a new channel to order from us and, and that might in fact drive them to order from us as opposed to our competitors. So in that situation, if we were to go to the CEO and say, we would like to make an investment in some hardware and some software to be able to do more in the context of mobility and the reason why we want to do that is we believe that that will help us grow revenue in our organization. We think that that will make a substantial impact and, and uh, will pay off. Well if I can tie what it is that I want to do with technology to the goals of our organization, now all of a sudden it demonstrates that what we're doing is in fact relevant and is going to make the executive leadership more inclined to to give us what we want. So the idea here of one of the things the chief information officer has to do is figure out what the goals of the business are and then align information technology to support those goals as one of the chief responsibilities. The, we talked about here on the part of the CEO the idea of responsiveness to business conditions. Well, one of the things that CIOs had as their top three was building responsiveness and agility into the organization through IT. So in other words what can we do using technology to help all our people be better at doing their job. One of the big things that you often hear talked about in this space is supporting collaboration. Very few things in a business happen as a product of one person working on it in isolation. Companies put together teams. A lot of times they're cross-functional teams, which is an idea we'll come back to here in a few moments, and the team needs to be able to work together effectively. Well, How could we use technology to support that? I found it very interesting. I was reading last night about some of the new features in the forthcoming Office 2016. And Microsoft Word is introducing a lot of new capabilities that allow for contemporaneous document editing. And I've not actually used the product, but the article that I was reading basically said that you could have a situation where multiple people have the same document pulled up at the same time, and they can all be editing the same document simultaneously. So you could imagine you and some of your your partners at work are working on a proposal, and as opposed to a bunch of people talking and one person typing, you all have the ability to contribute to the document. Yes, sir? I know that OneDrive is a, is a big element of this because they're talking about and it's a good example as well, uh, using a tool like OneDrive to make it very easy for people to exchange files and information with one another. I don't know if you've ever had this experience or not but doing things like attaching a large document or worksheet to an email sometimes results in it not going through because it's blocked by some kind of filtering or it's too big or something of that sort. And so the article that I was reading as well talked about this idea of OneDrive becoming even easier to use as a shared workspace. And so I don't know what that will actually look like, but there's a lot of things built into the newest edition of Office around this theme of collaboration. And that goes back to this idea of what can we do through information technology that will make our organization more responsive. In other words, when the chief executive and the leadership team finds a new business condition that they want to exploit, Can they do that very easily and the metaphor that's often used unfortunately here is sometimes IT is rather like trying to maneuver a battleship battleships are very powerful and very effective but they're not known for their maneuverability well IT in a lot of organizations is the same way it works very very well but once it's locked in it's very very hard to change and very very hard to adjust it to new things that we want to do in our organization so can we figure out a way to have that not be the case in our company's IT and then the last one goes goes with this uh, uh, very nicely as well which is enabling people and teams to be more effective through IT One of the things that is not realistic about your experience in ERP-SIM is the fact that you are sitting in front of a computer screen as are all the other members of your team and you're sitting there next to each other and you can turn to each other and talk to each other very, very quickly and very, very easily. In a real organization, the people that are planning production and the people that are setting prices and the people that are making and monitoring sales work in different departments. And maybe they get together once a month or or maybe a little bit more frequently than that to interact with each other directly. But a lot of what happens in the way of interpersonal communication is through emails or, or occasional phone calls or things of that sort. And so it's not as easy for communication to take place as it is for you when you just turn to the person on your left or on your right and say, hey, I think we should raise the price on this product you are much more agile than a real organization would be in trying to manage your relationship with the market. So are there things we can do that will help our people and our teams be able to use information technology more effectively? Let me just give you a couple of examples of this. If any of you have been to Walt Disney World in Orlando or any of the Disney theme parks you perhaps know that Disney operates a whole set of of hotels in and around their theme parks and if you stay in their hotels and you want to visit the theme parks you may Um, ride a Disney bus that's free for you as a as a uh, person staying in a Disney resort. And you go to a designated location, a bus comes by, picks you up, drives you to the theme park of your choice. Well Disney knows that people that are on vacation don't want to go stand at a bus stop for 45 minutes and then have it take them 45 minutes from that point to actually get to the park. So they know that a big element in customer satisfaction is making sure that people aren't waiting too long. Well, the challenge here is, of course, Disney never knows what people's schedules are, and so it becomes very challenging to make sure that they have all the buses in the right places at the right time, so that they don't have a bus that has two people in it driving from one resort to, uh, to a theme park when there are people standing around waiting at another facility. So in fact all of the Disney buses are equipped with GPS and and by that I mean not just GPS that helps the driver know what streets to drive down, but GPS so that someone in a master control center can track the location of the buses. in addition to that the bus stops all have cameras and tracking equipment in them to know how many people are waiting so if a particular driver is on his way to the Animal Kingdom Lodge to pick people up but the dispatcher knows that really nobody is waiting there but there are 25 people at Pop Century that need a ride they'll just automatically reroute that driver to that location to get those people picked up and to where it is that they want to go. It's an example of using technology to better approach our customers and to provide them with better service and also if you think about it it does some very important things for Disney as well such as it saves them gas and saves them uh, time and the expense of we don't have to add more buses we just have to be able to better utilize the buses that we have So it's an example of how we can take technology and use it to support the goals of our organization and enable the people that are working for our company to be able to do their their job better. So I thought that was a a good uh, kind of overview and and transition here as we continue in our discussion of of business concepts that are relevant for us as uh, future computing professionals. So as we continue our discussion here let's talk a little bit along the theme of how computers first came to business. Now all of you are growing up in an era where there were computers in existence when you were born. You know, maybe some of you, when when you think back to some of your first memories as a child, and I don't know how far back those memories go, but maybe you can think back to being in kindergarten or something like that, and maybe you remember that you know in your home you had a computer, or there was other technology in your home, and, and you grew up in that kind of environment. Well, it's very important to realize that if we were to go to an organization today and interact with the professionals there, first of all, a lot of them would be older. Um, As I have talked to really uh, a wide variety of businesses in this area over the last few years, one of the biggest things they say as a concern of theirs is the fact that they have an aging workforce. And in particular, a lot of the organizations have said that over the next five years, they think a substantial portion of their IT personnel are going to be retiring. So that's really good news for you guys because that's going to free up job slots that you can apply for. But if you look at the profile of those people, they're older, they entered the workforce during a time when there were not computers, or in some cases, they were hired as IT professionals as a first member of the computing team for their organization. I was talking with an alumnus of our department this summer who he's actually getting ready to retire, but he was, uh, I believe, a member of the first graduating class of the department. And uh, maybe you've heard the communication about that Uh, this year is the 40th anniversary of our department so he's been working professionally in IT for right around 40 years well when he was hired by his company uh, fresh out of college he was given a very important job as far as the implementation of a computer system because at that time his company had less than a dozen IT professionals working in the organization and they were buying their first computers because it was very very new at that time well a lot of people that are older they went through that so as we think about business and the way business is organized and the way technology came to business it's very important for us to realize how things have traditionally been structured in an organization and going back historically individuals like Henry Ford and others were among the first to realize, Frederick Taylor's another name that perhaps you've uh, heard in other classes you've taken, um, were among the first to realize that if there's work to be done, it makes sense that we break the work up and have different people do different parts of the job. In other words, if we're trying to uh, manufacture a product, what we don't need to do is have everybody do everything. What we need to do is say, okay, to make this product, there are 10 different steps. And so if we get 10 different people and each one of them does one of the steps, then we can do that much more efficiently. Well, out of that mindset, which the term we use to describe that is specialization, out of that mindset came the idea that, you know, that that concept applies not just in things like manufacturing but all throughout our organization if any of you have ever worked for a small business where there's just like two or three or four people that work for the business you probably have experienced the situation where everybody does everything because your team is so small and so everybody knows how to run the cash register everybody knows you know everybody sweeps the floor everybody kind of knows how to do everything because you're just not that diverse in in the people that you have working there but as you grow you begin to realize okay well it makes sense to have someone just always run the register and it makes sense to have someone always stock the shelves and you begin to follow this this principle of division of labor and specialization well what that resulted in in business is for businesses to create what are commonly called functional areas And functional areas are traditional groupings of personnel and resources based on business activities that that we need to, to accomplish as an organization. And these functional areas tend to be things that you would see as you move from organization to organization to organization. For example, most organizations of any size at all will have an accounting department. Well, that is a functional area and there are people that work in that part of the organization keeping track of our finances and preparing various statements to help us understand the financial state and condition of of our organization. We might have a team of people that are focused on human resources and the job of these human resources professionals is to uh, help find talent for our organization, to assist in interviewing people and getting people transitioned into jobs. And and this can be a, a mammoth Uh, undertaking in some organizations. I I read a couple of books this summer that talked about how uh, Google and Apple manage human resources and their big challenge is um, they are hiring people continuously and they want to find the best people they possibly can find. And so how do you do that? Well, that's the focus of human resource professionals, not only getting people in the door, but handling all of the different elements related to employee management, like helping people plan their benefits and other things of that sort. Organizations will typically have finance people. Finance is distinct from accounting. Accounting tends to be a lot of record keeping as it relates to what's going on with our money. Finance is more the people that are making decisions about what we're going to do with our money and how we're going to invest it and making financial projections for the future and so on. Here's a functional area that a lot of you can relate to. Uh, Information technology would be a functional area. Another functional area would be sales, uh, perhaps associated with sales. Maybe one department or maybe two different departments would be would be marketing. We might have an advertising department. Well, what we are describing here is these are all different functional areas. Now, As you look at that list, and it's not an exhaustive list at all, but as we look at this list of these different functional areas, what do you notice about that list? Anything kind of stand out to you as as something that's kind of interesting about that? In what other context have you seen? lists of where it says you know accounting and marketing and IT and advertising yes sir university of yeah your, your major your concentration when you're pursuing a university degree so if you think about it this has become so pervasive in business that now when someone graduates from high school they say I would like to work in an accounting department someday." And they go to a university and they pursue a course of study that's going to prepare them to be an accounting professional. Many of you are IT or IS students and so you are pursuing a course of study that you hope will prepare you to work in the IT department in an organization. So this has become so pervasive and so common in business that it it even has manifested itself in higher education and the kind of degrees that students pursue. The idea behind this is really really straightforward. It makes sense to have people, as it says right here, specialize. A person working in advertising doesn't need to know about accounting and a person working in accounting doesn't need to know about advertising now it might benefit each of them to know a little bit about what the other person knows but clearly the advertising person doesn't need to be an accounting expert the people that work at IT don't have to be expert salespeople nor do the salespeople need to be experts in IT we each have our role in the organization and so it's a way of, of providing for specialization, it also is a way of promoting efficiency so we get the benefit of that because things can be done in a more efficient manner but apart from that there's another kind of computery benefit that this gives us as well and that is it gives us a way in an organization of abstracting complexity We know who does what. We know that the accounting people are going to take Take control over these things in our organization. And we hire good accountants and we give them the resources that they need, and we trust that they will provide leadership to our organization to fulfill that role effectively. This means that the chief executive officer of a company doesn't have to be an expert in accounting and human resources and finance and IT and sales and marketing and advertising. They have to be good at overall leadership and strategic planning but the expertise to accomplish all of these things is embedded in each of these different functional areas and they manage the complexity for us. Now, why are we talking about this and and what does it have to do with us in the context of, of information technology? Well, the unfortunate scenario is in a lot of organizations, these different functional areas don't get along with each other. And this picture that I, I'm showing you here on the slide um, is one that I've seen in a lot of different sources. It's not signed, I have no idea, it gets credit for actually creating this. But it kind of illustrates this idea of each of these different functional areas has their own little castle and their own little moat and their own little weaponry. And they kind of have the mindset of we're gonna look out for ourselves and protect our domain uh, against other parts of the organization. And that's not a healthy way to build an organization. What we really should recognize is that all of us have a mutual dependency, but it doesn't always play that play out that way in, in organizations. So if we think about the history of organizations and, and the way things have evolved over time, there was a time before businesses had computers and all of the functional areas did their job and let's just take sales for example. Well once computers became available the people working in the sales organization might have said "Uh, we could use a computer It could help us do our selling job better. We could keep track of what products our company has. We could keep track of inventory levels and so on. Let's go out and get a computer to do sales better. And so the sales department goes out and buys their computer, illustrated here by my very fancy illustration of a box with a C in it, okay? And so that's the sales department's computer. Now, do you think they shared their computer with other parts of the organization? Absolutely not. Do you think they shared the information on their computer with other parts of the organization? Unfortunately, in a lot of organizations, the answer to that is no. It kind of goes back to the old adage, knowledge is power. And so if we have facts and we have information, and we hoard that information, then that's going to make us more powerful. And so what happened in organizations is when computers first came into being, these different functional areas all went out and bought their own computer, For some reason, production has installed theirs in the wall of their castle, but I had to put it somewhere. All of these different functional areas went out and bought their own computers. And in addition to that, the sales department went out and bought a computer and put software on it related to selling and the production department went out and bought a computer and had software on their computer related to production planning and execution and things like that. The people who bought things for our organization, they bought a computer and it had software on it related to what they needed to do. So the initial set of business software, that we saw in organizations was a software program and a computer that was designed to do one thing to help people out in a given functional area. Now that's not inherently bad, but it does create for us a a number of, of problems here. One of the things that is not happening here is these computers are not talking to one another partly because in the very early days, networking technology did not exist to allow the computers to talk to each other. But beyond that, even once networking technology became available, the different functional areas didn't want to hook their computers up to other computers. Going back to the whole idea of this is our computer, these are our resources, this is what we use, leave us alone. And so the applications that they ran, they were totally independent of one another. And so what tended to happen is, let's think in terms of inventory. The salespeople had a computer that told them what products we sold and what the inventory level was. The buying people had a computer that told them what the inventory of products was. The production people had a computer that told them what the inventory levels were. And it's not illustrated here, but the warehouse had a computer that told them what the inventory levels were. Now, what do you think the chances are that all of those computers agreed with one another about the inventory levels? Just about a 0% chance of that. And so, in fact, what happened was all of them might be wrong, or maybe one of them is right, but clearly we're not all on the same page. So how do you run an organization when everybody has their own version of the truth? and everyone has their own version of reality. You know, we can't make effective decisions that way. Sales says, oh, we need to lower the price of this product because we have an abundance of it. And meanwhile, production says, what are you talking about? We're just about out of this item. And the warehouse says, we're not out of that item. We have a whole bunch of it. And meanwhile, the people in purchasing are buying us more because they think we're about out of it too. And so everybody's doing their own thing to the best of their ability, but they're all operating under an ineffective structure because they're not sharing information effectively between these different functional areas. So a lot of what you saw in the early days of computing was a company going out and buying a computer and using it to do one or two or three things to help a given functional area do their job. And I want to suggest to you that that's a very reasonable thing for them to have done. I am not saying these people were stupid, and this shouldn't have happened. They were doing the best they could with what was very, very new to them at the time. Yes, sir Absolutely. Um, and in reality, you know there's a lot of similarities there in that let's say for example that every month the sales department used to create a report that they would send throughout the organization of what they sold and almost inevitably that report before computers would have been done on paper well all they did when they got computers was they used the computer to print it out and they sent that paperwork out throughout the organization so yeah a lot of the information exchange even though they had computers was done on paper and so immediately you know there's going to be a discrepancy there maybe for example the warehouse does an inventory and they discover we have a hundred thousand boxes of blueberry muesli they discover that on Monday they put it in a report that they send out on Tuesday it gets to the salespeople on Wednesday the salespeople say oh we have a hundred thousand boxes of blueberry muesli we can go and sell that well meanwhile as Tuesday and Wednesday progress the warehouse was shipping out more orders and now we don't have any blueberry muesli and so yeah a lot of the information exchange during this era was on paper just like it had been before we we had computers so the people in this era in information technology they they were pioneers they created a lot of very interesting things but their focus was on creating a computer system to do a job well to help a functional area. I have a, a video that I wanted us to take a look at here for uh, just a few moments that, that illustrates this, I think, very, very well and goes back to um, the very early days of business computing. And uh, so let's take a look at this and then we'll, we'll talk about it here. So the story of, of what was done by these uh, pioneers, as I I think they are very much deserving of of that uh, designation. Let me see if I can figure out how to uh, get out of this. Um, A lot of very interesting things mentioned in that video, but one thing that I just wanted to point out that I think, as was observed, we don't even think about these things today, but they did payroll. How many people did they say they did payroll for? 10,000 people. Okay, so now let's think about this. Imagine you don't have a computer. So what what do you have during that era? Well, before there was a computer, there were adding machines. And I, I read a book recently that was talking about uh, one of the earliest American installations that had a computer that would have been parallel with this in time frame would have been the things going on at what's now called Oak Ridge National Laboratories. Back then, it was uh, X10 was the name of the facility. And in the book that I was reading, it talked about the people whose jobs um, were not to use the computer, but to use adding machines. And if you've ever seen the old adding machines, they, they weren't like today, they weren't battery powered or plugged into the wall or anything like that. You, you had a numeric pad and you would key in a number and then you would like pull this lever and the lever would cause the things to be printed on a tape and would cause the internal gears and mechanical mechanisms to begin the process of calculation. And the book talked about how all the workers basically, at the end of their shift, a lot of them couldn't even raise their arm because of all the mechanics of pulling that. And I can imagine that after doing that for a while you'd probably be very well prepared for like arm wrestling matches or something because you know that was just their job. That was before there were computers. So imagine if I gave you an adding machine, and I'll even be nice and give you like a, a modern calculator. And I said, "Here's payroll information for ten thousand people," which meant I, I handed you a stack of ten thousand punch cards, and I said, "Okay, do payroll," which means that you have to calculate how many hours people worked you have to calculate there or know what their rate of pay is you have to do the math on that and then there's a check that has to be created well guess what we can't print out a check there's no direct deposit back then so you have another physical typewriter that you have to type the checks into in order to to make payroll 10,000 people, and at a lot of these organizations, people were paid every week. Can you understand how the people whose job that was might have been really, really happy when a computer showed up to, to help them? and so this particular example is just of a company that went out they bought a computer and they figured out a small handful of things that they could use that computer to do so undoubtedly they had a software package that they used that they wrote themselves that was not like they could go to the store or go to a supplier and buy anything they wrote their own software to do payroll and that was an enormous leap forward but still, that was just a computer that was doing one or two or three things. We still didn't really have this idea of information exchange throughout the organization. Anything else you saw in watching that video that you thought was uh, notable or, or interesting? Anything? One of the things that I always marvel over and it's, it's a way in which computing has changed for some reason in the modern era which is very very unfortunate and there are a lot of us in computing that are trying to figure out how to how to fix this. If you go back in time to those original computing departments and companies you will see that the workforce reflected the workforce in other parts of the organization in that it was 50-50 men and women. And in fact in a lot of organizations there were more women than, they were, than there were men because ironically enough using a computer was seen as women's work in the early days of computing. Uh, sounds really kind of bizarre, but if you go back to the era of Grace Hopper, for example, um, a lot of men, with their chauvinist attitudes, thought, well, a typewriter, that's women's work, and a computer is just a typewriter with something else hooked up to it, so that must be women's work, too. And so in a lot of organizations, the IT team was, was dominantly ladies, and they did a really good job. Uh, and now for some reason as time has gone by we're, we're seeing an inversion in that and we're seeing fewer and fewer ladies enter the computing profession and, and more and more men kind of offsetting that and it's certainly not because of any inherent ability difference between the gender but something has happened in the modern era to create that imbalance. So it's always fascinating to me to go back and look at the way things were a few decades ago and see that for every man you're to see a woman you're gonna see in many cases more women than men and we've lost that in contemporary IT which I think is just incredibly unfortunate I I salute the ladies that we have in this class that are pursuing the degrees that you are pursuing I wish you could find five or ten other ladies to to come with each of you throughout the program here because I think that's that's just really really important for the future of, of our profession um, anything else, as as you were watching the video, that maybe uh, jumped out at you, or you noted anything? I thought it kind of fascinating that when they talked about troubleshooting a problem. They had a problem that probably none of us have ever dealt with in any of our development work and I don't know if you understood it because of course they use the British terminology for it but they had a manager's lift or what we might call an elevator and so where their computer was was close to the elevator and the electronics of the elevator interfered with the electronics of the computer and so depending upon when the elevator was run some of the calculations might come out wrong Um, That's a whole class of problem that I'm sure none of you have ever dealt with. It's not like, oh, my Java program won't work because my smartphone is sitting next to the computer. But back during this era where you had more vacuum tubes and other things like that as components, that was a whole other kind of class of issue that uh, you could see. Well going back to our theme here, that was a really good illustration of this idea of we're going to bring a computer into an organization and we're going to park it in, in a functional area for us to use to help that functional area do its job. Now we'll come back to this theme later on in our discussion but to just go ahead and, and throw this out there now what we really are trying to do now in a contemporary organization is instead of having each functional area have their own computer have one, oh, let me pick a brighter color here, have one centralized computer that, that we all share. And the virtue of that of course is we all have one source of truth. So instead of every functional area having their own computer with their own set of information into it. All of us are feeding our information into the same system and getting our information from the same system and so we have this unified understanding of of what reality is. We're all on the same page. Well that's what we spend a lot of our time trying to accomplish in contemporary information technology there's a challenge in that though that gets right to the heart of this class which is if you're going to be the person responsible for managing and developing for and operating effectively this computer right here you kinda need to know at least a little bit of what goes on in these different functional areas and in particular how that relates to their information needs what does someone in buying need to know in order to be able to do their job well what information do people in sales need to know and beyond that what's the source of that information okay salespeople need to know things like inventory levels well where where in the organization are those inventory levels generated and and maintained and so on and so we've got to hook it up to our warehouse here as well Because they're the ones who can let us know what's in the warehouse and what's coming in and what's going out and so on. So if we're all using the same computer, if we're all on the same page, that's going to enable us to operate much more efficiently and effectively. And you see that in ERP SIM. As soon as a sale is made, you can see on your screen, your inventory levels go down. You hit the refresh button, boom, you see a lower number than was there 10 seconds ago. And so you know what your inventory level is and you know it's accurate literally on a minute-by-minute basis because everything's going into the same computer system that's what we are searching for and trying to make happen in contemporary organizations but it's all predicated on this use of a computer to support business processes so for the next probably for the majority of the time that we have have left today what I'd what I'd like to do is talk about okay these different functional areas what do they do and then beyond that what does that mean in terms of their data needs you know what information do they need in order to be able to do their job effectively so one of the functional areas out there is the purchasing department what does the purchasing department do? Well, fundamentally, they purchase stuff. Well, what, what does that really mean? Because it's more than just getting in the car and driving to Walmart and putting stuff in a shopping cart and driving back to the factory. It doesn't work that way. It's a little bit more complicated in a business environment. One of the things that our purchasing department must do is engage in material sourcing which means that perhaps in our organization we run a lot of, of uh, different kinds of equipment and our equipment a lot of it runs on not on electricity but on, on natural gas let's say and so we have to find a supplier for that product and so one of the things that our purchasing department will do is they'll look at all the different things that we buy in abundance and try and find us a supplier for it let's think about your ERP Sim organization you're going to see that next week uh, one of the new pieces of functionality is you'll be able to say exactly what you want to make you won't be constrained by the fact that you can only do a hundred thousand of each of the six different flavors so your team might say hypothetically Um, We really want to focus on blueberry and strawberry muesli. So in a real-world organization, that might mean we're going to use a lot of blueberries. Well, you can't just, like, call the blueberry fairy and ask him or her to deliver a bunch of blueberries. You know, if we need 10 tons of blueberries, where are we going to get that from? What's our best place to get that from in terms of blueberry quality and blueberry price and other factors like that. So in the purchasing department, they go out and they're responsible for everything as it relates to sourcing the materials that we need. Now, part of that is they play a role in in determining the need. They're going to help us figure out exactly what we want. For example, maybe we buy blueberries and we dry them to put them in our cereal. You know, I'm guessing, I, I haven't eaten all the different kinds of muesli and cereal there are out there, but I've never opened a box of cereal and seen like fresh blueberries in them. They're always like dried, right? Well, maybe we have historically bought blueberries and then dried them ourselves. Well, maybe there's a supplier out there that will sell us blueberries that have already been dried At a better price well we can use blueberries that have been dried by another company as long as they're of appropriate quality and such so part of what the people in purchasing have to do is figure out okay what is it that we really need understanding that our need might be this or might be this or or might be this and so they're out there looking for okay we need blueberries fundamentally that's true but that means we could buy frozen blueberries we could buy fresh blueberries we could buy blueberries that have already been dried let's look at all those alternatives let's figure out which one actually makes the most sense and of course the purchasing people they're really not the deciders they can't say, yes, let's buy frozen blueberries. But they can go to the people in the organization that do develop the products and make the products and say, hey, could you work with frozen blueberries? Because if you can, we could actually save a lot of money. And think about this in terms of ERP SIM. If, if your purchasing department came to you and said, if we buy frozen blueberries, we can cut the cost of a box of blueberry muesli by about 15 cents a box and if you're thinking about this properly you're probably thinking wow if we could cut our costs by 15 cents a box, we can either keep selling at the same price and make 15 cents more every time we sell a box, or we could lower our price and really outcompete that other pesky company that's been annoying us for the last few quarters because they've been stealing all our customers from us. So if the purchasing people can help us better determine our need, it can be a real vehicle for increasing our competitiveness. So they work with, with the various people in the organization to determine the need, they they search the marketplace to try and find stuff. I, I love the Snapple commercials because they're they're really really proud and they're also really really vague. You know what is Snapple's motto? Made of the best stuff. They don't tell you what it is. They just refer to it as stuff. But they're very proud of the fact that they have the best stuff. Well, a few years ago, my wife and I were in. I think it's Boulder, Colorado. I might be wrong about the specific location, but there's a Celestial Seasonings factory there. I don't know if any of you have ever had Celestial Seasonings. They make different kinds of flavored tea. Anybody drink Celestial Seasonings tea? It doesn't come bottled, you have to brew it yourself, okay, so one person has. Um, Anybody ever been to the Celestial Seasonings plant? Okay it's really kind of fun. You can take a tour and watch them making the tea. One of the things that I learned that's very appropriate given our ERP sim experiences, every time they switch from one flavor of tea to the other, they're very concerned about cross-contamination. So they actually um, go and blow out the equipment which basically is a bunch of people dressed in these suits that kind of resemble bunny suits like you might see in an IT manufacturing facility but not quite as elaborate with these equipment that shoots out this very, very high-powered stream of air and they just go through and they blow out all of the equipment and then they clean that and then they do it a second time so that your, you know, apple tea doesn't taste like Raspberry tea because they're very concerned about that. Well, when I took this particular tour with my wife, they brought us into this one room. The room itself was about as big as this classroom, but it was four times at least four times as high because it was a storage room in a warehouse. And the guy giving us the tour said, Okay, how many of you, you know, like have sinus congestion today or you have a headache or anything? And a few people did. And he said, Okay, I'm going to open the door to this room. I'm only going to open it enough. It had a big door I said I'm only going to open it enough so that people can walk in there and he said some of you may not want to walk in there if you have very sensitive noses he said but if you walk in there he said first of all I don't think you'll be able to stay for more than 30 seconds but walk in and it was the room where they had all of their mint stored now None of this came from the United States. All of this was sourced from different places around the globe, and it was dried, pure mint from the mint plant, or from the mint plant, not factory mint plant like you grow on the ground. And I walked into this room. I have never had the experience of feeling like I was not only smelling things through my nose, but through my eyes, ears, and fingers. It was like, it was like attacking me. I mean, I don't know how to explain it except to say it was so, it was pleasant, but it was like being attacked by every mint plant on the planet. And, um, you know, everybody that walked out, they were crying because, you know, not because they were sad, but because, you know, their eyes were just overwhelmed with this. Well, the guy from Celestial Seasonings made a big point out of the fact that they look all over the planet for companies around the world, and some of them are really small farms in some small country, and, and they grow mint and this company buys it from them, and they were very proud of the fact that their products were as good as they were because they found the best sources of the raw materials. Well, that's what our purchasing department will do for us. They'll search the marketplace and help us figure out, okay, this is the best whatever it is that we need for our use in our organization. You need a laptop? My job in purchasing is to go out there and help you find the best laptop that's gonna fulfill your requirements. You need a projector for, to hook up to a computer, you need mints, you need oil, whatever you need. My job is to save you the work of trying to find it. I'm gonna go out and find alternatives, bring them back to you and say, okay, here's seven things, which of these do you think is best? that's what they do for us in purchasing. Now once we have decided that one right there is the best, then the next thing they do is they engage in negotiating. They go back to that supplier and say we really like your mint. We would like to buy 10 tons of it from you. Can you sell us that much? And in some cases the farmer might say my entire crop this year will be five tons and in that case we might say to the farmer well we just like to buy your whole crop. I don't know if any of you have ever been to um, the part of Florida or the part of California where oranges are grown. It is not at all uncommon for the companies that buy oranges for the sake of producing orange juice to go to a farmer and say, your trees look like they're doing pretty good this year. We'll buy your farm. And meaning not they're going to buy the land or anything else, but they're saying, we will buy every orange that comes off of every one of these trees. And they just do that for the season. That's the way they get their supply. And their to go around and visit farms and maybe one year they say, you know, this farm, maybe the weather hasn't been good or it looks like you have some insects that have attacked your trees or whatever. Um, we don't want your oranges this year. You know, hopefully you can find someone else to buy it. And so a lot of what they do is they search the marketplace and then they engage in negotiation because as we observed before, every penny they can save us lowers our, our costs. If they can cut a nickel off of every pound of blueberries we buy that's going to go right to improving our cost of goods sold and improving our profitability. So they engage in negotiation, they engage in contracting, and then they are often involved in, in the receiving process. Now by that, I don't necessarily mean that they're going to be there when the truck rolls up and help unload it, but a lot of times when the items do come into the organization, they're responsible for inspecting those items to make sure that they're of appropriate quality. I don't think I've told you this story before, but some of you might have seen it in the news. This happened in the last... probably been about two years ago since this happened if any of you have ever driven by uh, the Eastman chemical facility in Kingsport you know that there are parts of that facility that train tracks run through and that's because a lot of their products come in or go out by way of train car and in fact Eastman is one of the largest purchasers of coal in the southeast United States. So a lot of the trains that you see rolling through this area that have coal on them are are bound for Kingsport for, for Eastman. Well, when you buy coal, there are different qualities of coal. And I'm far from an expert on it, but the quality has to do with the size of the coal chunks or nuggets I don't know what it's called and then the purity of the coal and so on and so forth well Eastman was buying railroad cars of coal okay so here's my very very impressive drawing of a railroad car That actually kind of looks like that covered bridge with wheels on it and wherever that is, but let's pretend that's a rail car. And if you've ever seen coal cars, you know that they're kind of like this in that they're open cars and there's like coal stacked up in it. Well, Eastman had bought railroad cars full of coal on an ongoing basis from their supplier and they began to realize that they weren't getting the yield out of the coal that they had historically gotten. For example, they might have known that one railroad car will let them run their factory for 10 days, and they were discovering that now a railroad car would only let them run it for like 9.2 days and so they started trying to investigate what was going on is something wrong with the equipment are we have we changed the way we run the equipment what's going on and in that process they came to the conclusion well maybe something's wrong with the coal and so they started paying more attention to it and they began to as they were as they were looking at the material they began to realize that there was a real difference in the quality of the coal And so they continued to investigate further and they discovered something that also happens sometimes in in grocery stores. I don't know how many of you go and buy like fresh meat Probably not something that college students do a whole lot of but my wife always laments the fact that if you go to the store and buy pork chops a lot of times there's eight pork chops in a package but you can only see four of them well the four that you can't see are not as pretty as the four that are on top you know it's just kind of one of those butcher tricks well what Eastman realized when they dumped out some of the coal and began to examine it more closely was the coal that was on top that they saw most readily when it was delivered was the really good quality coal and then underneath the coal down here was different and at first they thought well maybe it's just kind of an accident or something going on so they monitored it for a good long while and came to the conclusion nope this isn't an accident it's actually two different qualities of coal and the good coal is magically always loaded on top of the bad coal to make the shipment look good. Well at this point because we're talking billions and millions of dollars and we're talking interstate commerce they contacted the FBI and the FBI seeing the magnitude of the fraud or suspected fraud at this point got involved in this and so the FBI began working with Eastman and inspecting the shipments. And the FBI came to the same conclusion, this isn't just happening on accident, this is fraud. So they went to the company, and I don't know all the legal maneuvering, but let's just say the, many of the top executives of that coal company um, are now sitting in jail because that's interstate fraud and that's the kind of fraud that doesn't just get you a fine, it gets you some time in jail. I don't know how long they're spending there or anything like that, but it was covered by the news in this area that uh, some people from a coal company were going to jail for defrauding Eastman Chemical. Well, I told you that story to emphasize the fact that we can find a good source, we can negotiate a good contract, we can do everything right but then we've got to close the loop and make sure that what we get in is what we've actually paid for and that it's of appropriate quantity and quality and things like that so while the people that work in purchasing may not actually physically handle the merchandise themselves on some level they're responsible to make sure that what they ordered is what we actually get as an organization so what kind of data needs would someone who works in, in, in purchasing have? What do you think? What are some of the things that if you worked in purchasing you would need to know from other parts of the organization? Okay, how much, how much money we have to spend, how much capital um, because Uh, if we only have so much money in the bank we can't exactly go out and make a huge purchase if we're not going to have the money to pay for it. So how much money do we have to spend? That's good. What else might we need to know? Yes ma'am? Okay so there's two things embedded in that which is uh, I'll just put here what materials we need to buy and then how much do we need to buy? What, What else goes with that? There's what materials, how much and what's kind of the third obvious part of that? How much we have. Okay, that's good. I hadn't thought of that one. But our inventory levels, that's good. So then what's the other part of that? How much we, how, what, how much we need of something and what's the other fact that goes with that? When we need it. Okay, so, so when a particular need occurs. Here's the thing. Um, we are in September. If we were to go to Toys R Us headquarters and ask them about Christmas this year, they already have their Christmas orders in. Because Toys R Us buys in really high volume when it comes to toys, they can't like say, okay, it's mid November, let's go put together our Christmas shopping list. They work months and months and months in advance, and by February or March, they've already decided what's gonna be in the store the next Christmas. Because if you go to the Mattel company and say, we want three million of this kind of Barbie, Mattel's going to take a while to have to make that inventory. So we've got to know not only what we need and what quantity, but but when we have to have it. Because first of all, it's got to be there when we need it, but there's no virtue in it getting there really early. Let's think of our muesli factory that you're all operating. If you say, we're going to be making blueberry muesli two weeks from now, so we need fresh blueberries Monday two weeks from now, and the blueberries show up tomorrow, well if they really are fresh blueberries, in that two week span they may go from being really really top quality fresh blueberries to kind of slimy little purple pellets instead of blueberries. And so we want to you know, get things at their peak of quality, which means knowing when we, we need things. This is great, what, what else can you think of that we might need to know? Uh, let me see what I wrote down here. Uh, this is a kind of an obvious data need um the who who to buy from you know over time we're going to have to compile records and develop lists uh of who is a good supplier for us to deal with and and the inverse of that is um who not to buy from you know maybe we've bought something from a company before and um they told us we'd have it on Monday and it was a month later before we got it or they sent us stuff that was poor quality and then when we contacted them about it they gave us a hard time So we just won't buy from them anymore. And so purchasing has to keep records uh, about that as well. So money to spend, material, how much inventory, when need, who to buy from, uh, who not to buy from. We might even want to, if we're going to involve them in in strategic decisions, is they might want a sense of, of things that we're doing in the area of sales. So that they can be prepared. In other words, we might tell them, okay, in the month of November, we're going to roll out a bunch of pumpkin flavored stuff pumpkin flavored coffee, pumpkin flavored muesli, pumpkin flavored eyeshadow, pumpkin flavored everything. We're going to turn November into pumpkin month. And so, in their mind, they should be thinking, okay, If this goes well, we might need more pumpkin in November than we think we're going to need at this point. So let's go ahead and talk to some of our suppliers and have a discussion like, okay, we're not saying we wanna place an order today, but if we came back to you next week and said we needed 5,000 more pounds of pumpkins, could you get that for us and what might the price be? And so if we keep them in the loop about sales and promotions and such, they can help us. Now, as we look at these data needs, notice how much of this comes from outside of the purchasing department. The who to buy from and who not to buy from is something that the people in the purchasing department keep track of on their own. But the money they have to spend and how much of a given material we need and what our existing inventory is and when we need it and what sales promotions are going to happen, Those are all things that the people in purchasing, they don't decide. They don't inherently have those facts unless they're given to them. So one of the things that we have to account for in our information management in our organization is to make sure these people have the information they need to be able to do their job effectively. Because if we go back to where we started, if they can do their job really well and save us money, that money is going to directly improve our profitability and so that's what the purchasing department does for us there's a gentleman who graduated from our department um, in the last two or three years I think and went to work at an organization here in this area in the IT area and and did very very well and was very very happy working in IT and it sounds like kind of an odd career move, but an opportunity opened up in the purchasing organization of his company for like a, a, a strategic planner. And he decided to transfer to work in that area. Now he still does a lot of work with computers, and in fact, when he worked in IT, his primary job role related to um, forecasting and in data visualization and business intelligence and so when he transitioned to this other role his primary element was looking at this issue of what does our company buy and can we come up with a strategy to figure out how to buy more effectively and I don't know all the details of the story uh, only a certain set of people in the organization that are very well placed I'm sure know all the details but he basically came up with a model that allowed his company to forecast future costs of a particular material. And so let's imagine you know if we're looking at this in the context of blueberries if all of a sudden blueberry prices are going to become more expensive we want to place our order before the prices go up so this would be a really good time to place orders. Well he came up with a forecasting model that helped his company determine when was the optimal time to buy and what was the optimal optimal amount to buy. Well, the end result of that was in his first year in that new position, he became everybody's best friend because his model worked and saved the company several million dollars. Do you think he has job security? Oh, yeah. You know, not many IT people can say, "Uh, I went to work today and saved my company five million dollars. But he could make a statement like that because of what he was able to do by taking information the company had and taking information from other sources and using it to develop a model that aided the company in, in their purchasing process and so the information needs here are not earth-shattering but it's very important for the proper functioning of, of our organization. Well let's jump to um, I'm gonna skip over one here. let's talk about the warehouse here for a moment what what do they do in in the the warehouse well the warehouse is a very important place in our organization it's it's not really the most glamorous part of our organization but on a nuts and bolts level it's it's really really critical to us being able to do what it is that we need to do the warehouse is where all of our raw materials will come after we have bought them. So when the people in purchasing buy the blueberries and the strawberries and I don't know why I just wrote receiving raw matiers, I don't even know what that is. It sounds like French or something so give me a second here to fix that. I, I have learned um, that at least for me it is very hard to write and talk at the same time. So sometimes that's why I have to just be quiet and spell out things correctly okay so they receive the raw materials so the blueberries the strawberries everything else they have to receive those raw materials and and then they have to store those raw materials now even if you've never been in a warehouse before you probably have seen pictures of warehouses and you know that it's basically you know a large building or set of buildings with racks that have have large accumulations of materials on them. Well, there can be some real challenges associated with certain kinds of products. Maybe, for example, we're dealing with products that are inherently hazardous. I mentioned a few moments ago I told you the adding machine story. That came from a book I read that I I highly recommend that you put on your reading list called uh, The Girls of Atomic City which is about Oak Ridge National Laboratories and, and how Oak Ridge, Tennessee basically was founded by the government for the, prospect, for the, for the process of, of refining uranium. Well, here's the thing, if you work in a warehouse and the primary thing that you store is uranium, that's a little bit different than storing blueberries. and so we have to take very specific precautions to make sure that things are stored in a way that we maintain not only safety but the item at the peak of quality a number of years ago I toured a um, produce warehouse don't really know why but I like to take tours and so I took a tour of a produce warehouse and they had if you know anything about produce you know that for the most part it's stuff you have to keep cold and so we walked into the warehouse, and I think there was a small area that was non-refrigerated for certain kinds of products. And then we walked into the first refrigerator, and it was a huge room, and it was cold. It was like walking into your refrigerator, and there were all the different products there and everything, and um, you know, we looked around like, oh, strawberries and stuff. And, and then um, we were surprised, the guy was like, okay, now let me take you into the next uh, refrigeration zone. And so we walked kind of through the first refrigerator room into a second refrigerator room, and immediately you noticed the humidity level was higher. And he said, in the first room, we keep the humidity level And I forget what the number was, it was like 40%. And then we walked in the next room, he said the humidity level here is 60%. He said because some fruits and vegetables, they like to be stored in a lower humidity, some like to be stored in a higher humidity. And then we walked, he said, I've got one more room to show you. And we walked into another room, and I wanna say he said the humidity level was like 95%. It was like walking into a cloud, literally, because you walked in and almost instantaneously, you were wet and all of the boxes were wet. So it was like walking into a cold cloud and instantaneously being soaking wet because there are some fruits and vegetables that like that kind of high humidity environment. Well, if I'm running a produce warehouse by, configuring my cold storage to appropriately set the humidity level I might be able to keep bananas fresh for longer than the standard 10 days I might be able to keep them fresh for 20 days and that's going to be a big difference in my overall profitability because I'm going to have to throw away fewer bananas So there's actually a lot of important planning that goes into the storing of raw materials. It's not just a matter of, hey, take this stuff and put it over there. Sometimes we have to be careful about that. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Next time you go to the grocery store, find the aisle that has all the laundry detergent and stuff on it, okay? Find that aisle and then notice what aisle is to the left and right of it. And what you will find is that In all likelihood, the aisle that has detergent, the next aisle over is most likely to be stuff like paper plates. But you will never see the detergent aisle and the cereal aisle back to back. Because if that happened, your frosted flakes would taste like laundry detergent. Because if you've ever walked down the laundry aisle, you know it smells like a laundry aisle. Well, that odor can permeate other food products. So where they put stuff in the grocery store has to contend for that potential for for cross-contamination. So there's a lot of things that go into planning a warehouse to make sure things are stored appropriately. Managing the stored stock. I've got lots of stories I could tell you related to this but I'll just pick two. I I used to work in the restaurant industry in um, South Carolina and we started this thing one time and if any of you have ever worked in a restaurant maybe you've had to do something like this where the waiters and waitresses used to have to do what we called side work. And some of it included prepping some fruits and vegetables that were later gonna go into the salads. And inevitably what would happen is there would be the lettuce left from the day before. And it was still perfectly fine lettuce, you can imagine like a big container that just has a little lettuce in the bottom of it. Well, what do you think tended to happen if no one made sure it didn't happen? The new people would come in and when they were prepping the lettuce, they'd dump the new lettuce just on top of the old lettuce because that was more convenient. Well, if you do that for a day or two, what's going to happen is the old lettuce is always at the bottom. And it's going to spoil and it's going to become not really good and then that's going to cause the lettuce above it not to be real good either what you have to do is you have to rotate your stock you have to take the older lettuce and make sure that it goes on top not on the bottom so it gets used first same thing as when you're you know working with milk that has dates on it and so on you have to manage the stock appropriately to rotate it one organization I worked with in the past had a warehouse where they were storing commercial food-related products, and I, I went on a, a, an inventory tour one day just to kind of walk around and make sure that inventory was being done properly, and up on one of the racks near the roof, I looked up and I saw this pallet behind another pallet, and it had boxes on it. I could tell that much, but the boxes, I don't know how to describe it except to say the boxes had slime growing all over them, and I was like, "What's what's in that pallet up there?" And the guy looked at his inventory report and said, "Well, that slot, such and such, such and such," and he flipped a few pages and he said, "According to the inventory report, there's nothing in that slot." And I said, "Well." Your eyes and my eyes work pretty good. We can both look and there's something in that slot. And he's like, "Not on my inventory. I have no idea what it is." So I'm like, well, let's pull that down and see. Well, here's the thing. If it's not on your inventory record, then it basically doesn't exist as far as the warehouse is concerned. So he pulled that down, and it was a K excuse me, it was a pallet of cases of number 10 cans of Heinz' ketchup. Now, if you've never seen a number 10 can, it's like the the commercial can, it's like bigger than anything you'd buy at home, although you can buy them at Sam's Club. But it basically holds about a gallon of stuff. So you can imagine a can that holds about a gallon of ketchup, and there's six of those cans in a case. And probably on a pallet, there's probably 48, 50 uh, cases of ketchup. He pulled it down, dropped it on the floor, and And it was quite a sight to behold Um, we opened up one of the cases to look at the cans and ketchup is inherently acidic and when you put that in a metal can it's okay for a period of time but if you leave it there like we theorized happened with this particular pallet for five years All kinds of interesting things start to happen. The can start to rust, and when they start to rust, that lets air in, and and no longer does the can contain the ketchup inside, so the ketchup starts oozing out, and in very short order turns green and moldy and slimy, And so that was what was like all over what we saw and then the other fun thing is a lot of the cans were swollen got to be really really careful if you ever see like a swollen can because that means that botulism is in that can and actually just inhaling the gases of that can make you sick or even kill you and literally if you were to take one of those cans and don't ask me how I know this and drop it it explodes like a bomb I mean it just like goes off Well, there was this pallet of ketchup that had sat in the warehouse so long the only choice we had was to very, very carefully throw it away. Well, if we bring things into our warehouse and don't properly manage how they're stored and where they're stored and that we in fact have them, things can disappear. In some cases, things can disappear because of faulty record keeping, which is what happened in the case of my ketchup. Things can also disappear in what other ways? Theft, have you ever been to, um, I think Best Buy still does this. I know that uh, at least at one point, Sam's Club used to do this, where there are certain products that they sell that they, they don't have a lot of them out on the floor. And when you want one, the employee like has to go get it for you out of a cage. It's basically like a cage area with a lock on and they have to open up the lock and go in there and get the item for you. Well, what's that all about? Um, they don't want employees to steal the stuff. And so they lock it up in that fashion to keep that from, from happening. So one of the things that warehouses have to take care of is, is security of products. One of the items most stolen in our contemporary society are our smartphones. Every time Apple sends out smartphones, you can read about this online if you're so inclined, Apple sends out a number of probe type packages which basically are iPhones that are specially coded and have specially tracking in them so that they can follow it as it goes through FedEx and UPS and other shippers and they keep track of what percentage of packages go missing and historically speaking you can look at the reports when Apple sends out iPhones let's say they ship them through UPS a certain percentage of them will never reach their intended delivery location. And one thing I said read that it ran around 3%. Now sometimes it's because the UPS drivers will not deliver them. They will somehow find their way into other locations sometimes it's people that follow the UPS trucks on days that they know that a lot of iPhones are likely to be delivered and then just kind of scope out the size of the box that the person's carrying up to the house and does it look like anybody's home and if not they run up there and grab the package I mean there's a lot of things like that that you have to be concerned about as it relates to security but Apple takes this really seriously Uh, a few Iterations of the iPhone ago, Apple, I, and I forget the companies involved, so I might have this backwards, they switched from using UPS to using like DHL for one delivery. And it was because they were very concerned that UPS did not exert proper security with their last shipment. And I actually went on a, a message board online called Brown Cafe which is a message board where all the UPS drivers talk about UPS stuff. I don't know how I found it one day, but I did and I thought it was interesting. And they were talking about the iPhones. And one of the guys said, I walked into my truck today and in the back of my truck was an iPhone in a box just sitting there in shrink wrap. It wasn't in a package or anything. And he said, I immediately became really, really concerned. And so I didn't even go into the truck. I called my manager over and said, you know, look, oh, an iPhone sitting there and it was part of their security investigation. You know, They like put stuff out and see if it disappears and see if they can find employees that are, are stealing stuff. It's kind of an unfortunate reality that we have to contend with in, in the contemporary business environment. So part of what we have to do in our warehouse is, is to make sure our products are, are appropriately secured. That ties with issuing and retrieving stock. Which is the idea that when we do have materials that should legitimately be leaving the warehouse it's incumbent upon us as warehouse workers to go and find those items to retrieve them and issue them to the appropriate people. Now that could mean that in our organization the warehouse is in charge of of shipping. Amazon maintains distribution warehouses where they have this huge accumulation of products and the people there go and they pick the merchandise they put it in the boxes that eventually make their way to your house and to my house so the next stop after the warehouse in that situation is, is the customer so a lot of what they are doing is handling what is called outbound logistics Our warehouse might also and it depends on how we have structured things in our organization I'm going to come over here to the right we might also have to handle different kinds of inbound logistics now we already talked about inbound logistics in terms of retrieving of raw materials but we might also have inbound logistics in terms of customer returns of merchandise So I order something from Amazon and I decide I don't want it, and I ship it back to them, and it goes back to the warehouse. And at that point now, the person in the warehouse has to open it, make sure they understand what it is, make sure that it's appropriately packaged and that I didn't ship them back something different than they were expecting and and authorize me to retrieve to receive a uh, a refund or or whatever have you so the warehouse is a very kind of blue collar nuts and bolts kind of place where a lot of work gets done we have a class member here wearing a Dunder Mifflin shirt. If you ever watch The Office, a lot of stuff happened in the warehouse. Uh, kind of a semi-realistic warehouse, although in the case of the show, much smaller than any real production warehouse I've, I've ever actually seen in, in the real world. Well, if you think about the data needs of, of people working in the warehouse, they have a lot of needs as it relates to the materials. They need to know, okay, this material is hazardous. They need to know this material needs to be stored in refrigeration. Um, I told you about the refrigeration rooms I had been in. That same facility also had a frozen freezer room. And it was the coldest place I think I've ever been in my life. And I've, you know, been in different places during the winter, but this seemed colder. It was a freezer room that I I think they kept at 30 below zero, but it felt colder than that. And what I still remember about that is the lighting was very similar to the lights we have in this room, the fluorescent lights. But it was so cold in there, the fluorescent in the light bulbs froze. So when you walked in, it was like you're walking into a horror film because there was just like this flickering light, you know, occasionally. It wasn't like the room was well lit or anything like that. You were expecting like somebody to jump out with a hockey mask and chainsaw on at any moment because of the the environment there. Well, I need to know hazardous material, how it needs to be stored. I need to know a lot about the materials. I obviously need to know uh, about sales that have been made you know what am I shipping out how is how is that going to happen when Amazon Every once in a while they will get certain products that are very, very popular that they know customers are going to buy. The most recent example I know of about this goes back a few years to when um, the Harry Potter books were all the rage. And when the new Harry Potter books came out, literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people all over the country wanted the new Harry Potter books from Amazon and so what Amazon did is as soon as they got the books in from the publisher they boxed them up so that that way when they got an order all they had to do was slip a la- or slap a label on the box because they were already boxed and ready to go and that way they could get things out really 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 quickly Amazon actually does a number of things some of this they have patented and I'm not sure whether they're actually doing this or not but Amazon before uh, has in their in their business plans talked about the idea of like when a big shipment of things like Harry Potter books are expected out ship an entire pallet of boxes to a given area and then Um, once they're in that locale, like once they're in Atlanta, uh, sending the shipping labels separately, and then actually just like putting the label on the boxes so that they can go right on the truck and be delivered that day. So they're actually like pre-shipping them to parts of the country and then merging them with actual address locations later on downstream. We can do things like that if we know uh, about sales, not only routine day-to-day sales, but times when sales will be will be spiking. The warehouse is not involved in production. The manufacturing assembly line, the production facility is a different place from the warehouse but the warehouse has a very intimate relationship with production in that we store their raw materials We then send them to them so that they can make muesli or whatever have you out of them. And then once they've done their job, they send it back to us for us to store and get ready to ship them out to customers. So we have a very, very intimate relationship with the production department, which means that we really need to know what they're doing and we need to know okay tomorrow morning they're going to start on a big batch of blueberry muesli so we've got to stage all of their products so that we can move them over there and have them ready to go because if we don't have them their products when they're ready to go we're going to hear about it and so the warehouse is a functional area in our organization that has a lot of very specific data needs that are critical to just keeping things flowing along effectively in our organization. I I wanted to talk about the warehouse first and then we'll back up a slide and this will be the last one we'll have time to talk about. I said that the factory and the warehouse were two different areas. Well, now we're talking about the factory. Depending upon our organization, we might call this different things. We might call it the factory. We might call it the, you know, production. We might in fact refer to it as logistics or operations Um, lots of different terms we could use but we're talking about like what's illustrated here on the top right of this slide the place where we where we make stuff well what are these guys focused on their big thing that they do is called production execution which does not mean we kill production but means that we execute it in terms of making it happen and so their job is okay today 25,000 boxes of blueberry muesli today 10,000 boxes of mixed fruit muesli one of the things I found incredibly fascinating about the uh, Girls of Atomic City book that I was reading is there were people that came to Oak Ridge because they needed a job they had no idea what they were going to be doing and a lot of them were women which is why it's called the girls of atomic city and a lot of them were to work in this X-10 facility you can find pictures of this online and their job they didn't know what their job was their job was to work on an assembly line type thing with these big cauldrons that were contained in this housing and they had all these different dials and wheels and levers and basically they were told, okay, this stuff is gonna be dumped in and you have to watch all these dials and you know, here's how you make adjustments to it to make sure that it's done properly and then at the end of a period of time when this happens, you push this button and someone will come and, and retrieve that and then you start all over again. And th- their whole job was to make this stuff and literally had no idea what they were making they just called it stuff because it was uranium they were refining uranium for the atomic bomb and the government did not want our enemies to know that that Oak Ridge, Tennessee is where a whole bunch of uranium is that we're gonna use in, in military combat. So even the people that worked there had no idea what they were doing. And in fact, if anybody got you know, like uh, curious and started asking questions, the book talks about the fact that they just disappeared which doesn't mean that somebody like put a bullet through their head like in a movie it just meant they were fired and they were shipped you know they were like you're fired and they put them on a bus and sent them out of town because they didn't want people that were curious and so it's just fascinating to read this book that talks about all these people doing all this work and none of them had any idea what they were actually doing well That's not the reality in most contemporary factories that people know. I'm making cars, I'm making blueberry muesli, I'm making laptop computers or whatever have you. But what happens in these factories is we make stuff. Now we can't just make stuff. There's a lot of preliminary production planning and scheduling that has to happen. And you guys have seen that in your ERP sim experience. You have already faced the very real world scenario of, we need blueberry muesli, we need mixed fruit muesli, which do we want to make first? And how much do we want to make? It's a very, very real world problem that, that professionals all across this country have to decide every day as it relates to running their factory. Um, I've worked at a few different companies where there were people that were paid pretty good sums of money and their primary job was not to actually make the stuff, but to come up with a plan for, okay, we're going to make this, and this is how many we're going to make of this, and then we're going to make this, and they developed this whole production schedule. The same thing is true for them as it is true for you in ERP-SIM. Your goal is to not run out of anything. But the challenge is that's often very, very hard to accomplish. The ideal production schedule is one where, you know, as you sell your last box of blueberry muesli, the warehouse with new boxes of blueberry muesli is rolling in. And there's no virtue in having a million boxes of blueberry muesli. We want to make sure we have enough of every flavor to meet demand. Not trivial. As you have already seen and will continue to see this semester, That's a big part of what has to happen in operating a a factory like this. Production monitoring. I I think I make a statement somewhere in the training videos you watch related to ERP-SIM that your factories essentially exist in utopia because if you order 25,000 boxes of something you get exactly 25,000 boxes. You know in the real world it doesn't play out that way if you're running an automatic automatic assembly line you may order 25,000 and get 25,020 because of just the way the batches worked out and how the machine was loaded or you might get 24,874 because somebody accidentally messed up some of them and we had to throw them away you know maybe the glue wasn't good and so some of the boxes weren't sealed and so we had no choice but to discard them so production monitoring is a big element in this because we don't want that to happen so we are constantly using automation and using people to keep a look on on what on what actually happens this summer, went another tour of a manufacturing facility of a place I cannot tell you much about. But what struck me about this facility was I am not exaggerating when I say the facility was the size of about four football fields, and huge building. And the person I was talking to said, when I first started working in this facility and it was like 50 years ago. He said, you could not walk in this building without just bumping into people continuously. He said literally there were thousands of people that worked in this facility. He took me on a tour. The facility was in full production. I did not specifically count, but I feel very confident that in the entire time we were there, which was about two and a half hours, I saw 10 or fewer people. It was all being done with robots robots and automation and largely what I saw was people there sitting on stools watching everything happen and if anything ever happened that was wrong then they would go and fix it or push a button to cause the line to stop so that they could fix it but products were moving around things were going into boxes stuff was happening and it was being done with robots we had to be careful where we walked because robots were like driving up and down the aisles hauling materials totally automated It was a totally, uh, I forget what they call that, autonomous production facility, where the only people that were there were just to make sure the robots didn't decide to fight at some point or something like that. They just made sure everything was working. So production monitoring is a, a really big part of this because it ties into this issue of quality control. I didn't make this point before, but it's worth mentioning here. If we buy cruddy stuff, we can't make good stuff out of it. If we got the world's best chef and said, here chef, here's 10 pounds of rotten hamburger and some spoiled onions and some stale bread, make us a great hamburger. He's not gonna be able to do that. Any one of you could make a better hamburger just by using fresh beef and good ingredients than he or she could if they're working with rotten materials to start with. Our purchasing people need to get us good stuff. But then, assuming they have done that, we need to make sure that in our production facility, we're making the best stuff we possibly can. So we've got to exert quality control here. Everyone who goes to a car dealership and buys a new car wants a perfect car. They don't want a car that when they get in, they say, oh look, that dial is off center and there's some glue leaking out of that vent over there. 99.5% of the car is great. I'll just live with the half percent that's messed up. No, they want a perfect car. Well, we only deliver that if we have good quality control. And then the last thing I'll add to the list here for our time together today, plant maintenance. We have a lot of equipment. I mentioned the people that I saw that were sitting on stools when I took my tour. The other class of people I saw were maintenance people that were picking up jobs to go out and work on equipment in the factory. Some of it because it was broken, but some of it just preventative maintenance, like you take your car and you get the oil changed hopefully you do that uh, so that your car continues to run well we've got to do the same thing in our manufacturing facility to make sure things are operating at the peak of performance. Well this is where we will stop today I hope all of you have a great uh, rest of the day Uh, maybe think about doing some of the homecoming stuff on Friday and this weekend I think it will be fun.